Ilya likes to say, when I introduce you, I can actually steal your jokes. Ilya was born in the Soviet Union and his family emigrated to Canada before he came to the United States. And he says, like most immigrants, he's here to do a job that Americans don't want to do themselves, in his case, defending the Constitution. Ilya took over the directorship of Cato's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies last year. It was found, the center was founded about, I think it's 31 years ago by Roger Pallon. And during that time, the center has played an indispensable role, I think, in restoring respect for the Constitution and the fact that policymakers, we know they don't always take the Constitution seri as seriously as they should. But I think that it is true that they take it a bit more seriously than they did before Roger started the center. Um, the pocket constitution of which there are six million copies we've distributed, you know, occasionally you'll see both Republicans or a Democrat whip it out of their pocket when they're making a point on the floor of the Senate or the House or in a press conference. So all that has had impact. I think the center has particularly had impact in really changing the way our country, and particularly the judiciary, think about this false dichotomy between, you know, it's, it's either judicial activism or judicial restraint, but rather to think of an engaged judiciary that strikes down laws that are unconstitutional, um, doesn't give undue deference to political branches that pass laws that, that contravene the Constitution. And I think that's been a great achievement that has had tangible impact on our country. Ilya has been the architect of Cato's amicus brief program, which is often cited as being one of the most highly influential programs. And you know you have an influential program when it appears on Jeopardy, because last year, actually it was at, I think at the end of 2018, there was a Jeopardy category on the Supreme Court, and one of the clues was the Cato Institute helped convince SCOTUS to rule against these organizations in 2018's Janus versus Ask Me, and the answer to which was, what are public sector unions, Alex? It actually, of the five clues in that category, two of them actually involved Cato briefs, even though Cato was only mentioned once. Uh, there's also another anecdote I like to tell, to share, about the impact that our amicus program has had. Ilya was one day in the line at the cafeteria at the Supreme Court, and Justice Kagan was there and said, oh, Ilya Shapiro, I read your stuff. <laughs> and to which he replied, Justice Kagan, I read yours too. <laughs> and she said, well, I guess we're even Stephen. So please join me in welcoming Ilya Shapiro. Thanks very much for that. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I love coming down to South Florida, and I love coming to Fort Lauderdale. Uh, Peter stole my immigrant joke, but I have more from my past that, that, that's relevant to open this with. 
My first time in Fort Lauderdale was less than a decade after we'd immigrated to Canada. I was on a spring break trip down here, but not to party. I was a, I was a high school freshman. It wasn't so much that. But the uh, International Swimming Hall of Fame is just down the street here, and I was a water polo player, and we would come for, uh, for training sessions every, every winter. Uh, and if you had told that kid, again, this is 92, I think, was the first time, uh, that, that uh, 30 years later that I'd be standing here at this, this wonderful facility talking to you about these ideas that have helped uh, my family, that, have, that drew my family out of the Soviet Union and allowed me to live uh, my American dream, to tie it back to how Peter opened this session. I think that would be uh, quite remarkable. Uh, and to tie this to David's theme, the idea of bringing power under the rule of law. Now, the Supreme Court is much in discussion uh, these days. How many of you recall, uh, I think it was a couple of Thanksgivings ago, where President Trump went on a rant on, on Twitter about an Obama judge who had ruled against him, right? Well, Chief Justice Roberts, in a very unusual public statement for uh, a Supreme Court justice or a Chief Justice to make, uh, came to the defense of, quote, an extraordinary group of dedicated judges doing their level best to do equal right to those appearing before them. Uh, Trump then uh, took to Twitter again to correct Roberts and assail his old bugaboo, the Ninth Circuit. Never mind that the judge was correct in that particular case, kind of a technical issue about a statute on asylum applications. Uh, this president certainly has faced plenty of adverse rulings uh, by judges appointed by presidents of both parties, and, and he himself has appointed judges who have ruled against him. But that's no different than any president, especially Barack Obama, who lost more and more unanimously at the Supreme Court than any of his predecessors. Never mind, too, that the Ninth Circuit should indeed be split up, but not because it's liberal. Uh, I have a Law Review article that just came out detailing why you know, it's so big and unwieldy and bad for the rule of law in all sorts of ways. In fact, uh, as I'll get to, uh, after the most recent appointments, it's, uh, there are five courts that, at least by a crude metric of Democratic to Republican appointees, are more, quote unquote, liberal than, than the Ninth Circuit is now. But anyway, the larger point is that even as Roberts is right that, uh, well, nearly all judges act in good faith, there are stark jurisprudential differences that can appear political. Progressives think the courts are too cozy with big business and deny the rights of the little guy. And don't get them started on Citizens United. No, please, don't. Um, conservatives, for their part, are wary that they always seem to be one vote short on all the issues that matter most. And all that's before we even get to the circus that comes to town every time there's a Supreme Court vacancy when the left dials it up to 12, particularly on abortion, but there are plenty of horribles in that parade. If Gorsuch is an illegitimate justice because he stole Merrick Garland's seat, well, Kavanaugh's illegitimacy, even before any sexual assault allegations, stems from being selected to grant Trump some sort of newfangled immunity, uh, as if he wouldn't have been picked by Jeb Bush or Ted Cruz, that he's just Michael Cohen with a Yale degree. And of course, the Gorsuch confirmation happened only after the Senate voted largely on party lines to exercise the nuclear option and remove filibusters for Supreme Court nominations. That actually returned Senate procedures to what they had been 15 years earlier. Um, 
uh, a Senate majority can still stall a nomination. We might see future Merrick Garland situations, but a minority lacks that power. Given that judges are now picked for jurisprudential, well, and demographic correctness, rather than party loyalty and cronyism, nominations won't really be that different. And opportunities for obstruction uh, have continued as well, but pushed down to more arcane parliamentary steps like cloture votes and blue slips. I'm happy to talk to you about that, but I don't want to bore you too much uh, right now. Even as control of the Senate remains by far the most important aspect of this whole endeavor. The, mo the battles over Kavanaugh and Gorsuch were just the latest moments in a tit-for-tat escalation going back decades. The Garland uh, uh, blockade, they were retaliation for that, uh, but that, that blockade in turn followed Harry Reid's nuking of filibusters for lower court nominees in 2013, uh, which came a decade after Reid uh, uh, developed that tactic against George W. Bush's nominations, uh, particularly Miguel Estrada. At a certain point, it doesn't matter who started it, and the senatorial brinksmanship is a, a symptom of a much larger problem that began long before Ted Kennedy smeared Robert Bork in 1987, and that's with a constitutional corruption during the New Deal that has only expanded in the decades since. Under the Constitution by which the country lived for its first 150 years, the Supreme Court hardly ever had to strike down a law. But as the government's grown, so have the laws and regulations uh, over which the court has power and has allowed to come to power. For example, the idea that the General Welfare Clause um, justifies any legislation that gains a simple majority in Congress as opposed to limiting federal reach to truly national as opposed to parochial or, or regional issues, um, uh, well, that emerged in the progressive era. And then after 1937's so-called switch in time that saved nine, where the court, perhaps fearing FDR's court packing, started approving grandiose legislation of the kind that it had been rejecting, uh, no piece of federal legislation would be uh, invalidated on federalism grounds until 1995. And so it's the New Deal court that politicized the Constitution and the confirmation process uh, by laying the foundation for judicial mischief of every stripe, uh, particularly letting laws sail through that should be uh, invalidated. And as we've gone down that path, the judiciary now affects public policy more than ever. Every June, half a dozen of the biggest political issues in the country are decided not by Congress, but by the Supreme Court. The only lasting solution is to return to the Founders' Constitution by devolving power, so Washington isn't making so many big decisions for the whole country. Depoliticizing nominations is a laudable goal, but that'll only happen when judges stop ratifying the growth of the federal government and rebalance power, push it back to the states, uh, enforce that dynamic. At the same time, courts uh, are reactive institutions. Even the most activists don't just uh, uh, reach out uh, for issues on which to write uh, opinions, need a case or controversy. So it's Congress that's ultimately the aggressor, uh, both daring the courts to strike down significant pieces of legislation and writing that legislation so broadly that it's ultimately the administrative agencies that produce the legal rule by which people are uh, bound. Congress doesn't complete its work because this way it can pass the buck to a faceless bureaucracy and to a court system that has to then evaluate whether what the alphabet agencies come up with uh, is within spitting distance of what the Constitution allows. So what's supposed to be the most democratically accountable branch has been punting its responsibilities and avoiding hard political choices since uh, long before the current uh, era of uh, gridlock, polarization. 
Indeed, the gridlock uh, is a feature of a legislative process that's meant to be difficult, but compounded of late by citizens of all political views becoming frustrated that whichever party they put in power, nothing changes. Washington's become a perpetual motion machine, and the courts are the only institution capable of throwing in a monkey wrench from time to time. That's why people are so concerned about the views of judicial nominees and why there are more protests in front of the Supreme Court than in front of Congress, which is bizarre when you come to think of it. You know, Congress is supposed to be where we fight out our clashes of values or differences of uh, policy views. In any case, things are looking up uh, at the court. Justice Gorsuch has quickly settled in, establishing himself as an evocative writer and libertarian darling. In his first full term, he was assigned to write more five to four majority opinions than any rookie justice since 1988-89, when that rookie justice was one Anthony Kennedy. And those who hoped for or feared a smooth writing textualist got what they expected. At his first argument, he asked, quote, wouldn't it be a lot easier if we just followed the plain text of the statute? Gorsuch has also warned against judicial overdeference to executive agencies. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of that debate, but I think it's refreshing that in this pen and phone and tweet era that we have a jurist who sees a problem with uh, a government run by bureaucrats rather than legislators. And why do those who uh, criticize Gorsuch and others for wanting to push back on the administrative state. Why do they want to give all this power to Rick Perry and Betsy DeVos and other uh, Trump administration officials? Because that's what they're saying uh, when they're saying they don't uh, like this pushback to deference, judicial deference. But anyway, the court's ideological dynamic that we'd all gotten used to with four liberals, four conservatives, and a human jump ball, that is, uh, that's all over. Uh, with Kennedy's retirement, the court is poised to move to the right with the Chief Justice at its center. And we haven't had a Chief Justice as the median vote in more than 50 years. That was at the end of the Warren Court where he might have been the median vote, but he wasn't, there weren't so many five to four decisions. Um, while Roberts now has even more incentive to indulge his minimalist fantasies and command the court from the uh, squishy commanding heights, he's a far surer vote for conservatives than Kennedy was, although perhaps not for libertarians. Although, in Kennedy's last two terms, Roberts just beat him out for agreeing with Cato more often. Go figure. And by filibustering Gorsuch, Democrats gave up any power, any leverage they had over the next more consequential vacancy. It's not at all clear that moderate Republicans would have gone along with uh, a nuclear option to seat Brett Kavanaugh. I think it's pretty clear they wouldn't have, but they didn't face that dilemma. Kavanaugh, remember, was picked because he was a mainstream, kind of conventional conservative. Uh, even if an inside the beltway double ivy swamp creature is an unlikely pick for this particular president. Well, he's at least like Justice Kennedy, for whom he clerked, as did Gorsuch, uh, by the way, in his dedication to the Constitution's structural protections for liberty. Most notably, Kavanaugh's willingness to push back on the excesses of the administrative state make him a man for the moment. This is a hot topic that you raised in the last Q&A. Uh, at the same time, he approaches his task from a different angle than Gorsuch. Gorsuch wants to pare back the scope of deference. Easy to understand, good enough. Kavanaugh focuses on uh, reducing the occasions when the deference is even applied in the first place. That is, 
For example, Chevron deference, the most famous kind, where judges defer to agency interpretations of their operative statutes when that statute is allegedly ambiguous, unless they take a really crazy position, unless they're arbitrary and capricious in the legal jargon. Uh, well, Kavanaugh would rather that judges work harder not to find, let alone manufacture, that ambiguity. Uh, so as the, the doctrine, whatever its scope, uh, comes in in the first place. It's kind of interesting. We'll see what this dynamic, how it plays out. It's kind of like a, a Thomas versus Scalia dynamic as well. Now, Kavanaugh's not libertarian, although I think he's better on civil liberties and criminal justice uh, than you may think, at least in the domestic sphere. And he's not a moderate, although on most of the issues causing progressive rage on my Twitter feed, at least, uh, he's no worse than Kennedy was for them. Uh, my fervent hope is that in those sensitive cases where John Roberts may be inclined to tweak a statute in, in order to uphold it, that Kavanaugh will be more like Scalia or Thomas and let the political chips fall where they may. But the jury's still out on that, because in his first term last year, uh, especially on petition rejections and other kind of more technical motion practice and things like that, not the fully briefed and argued cases, what lawyers call the shadow docket, he displayed a, a certain pragmatism, not necessarily a ready-to-go uh, uh, you know, movement conservatism to take up a case and decide uh, these issues. And he kept a low and agreeable profile. He actually became the justice most often in the majority last term, over 90% of the time, showing how different he was from his fellow Trump appointee Gorsuch. And he actually aligned as much with Justices Breyer and Kagan as with Gorsuch, about 70% of the time. In fact, those two voted together the least often for any two justices serving their first term together, nominated by the same president, since at least JFK. I'm pretty sure it probably goes for the, the whole of history, but uh, that's as far as I, I've done that research. For all the doomsday prophecies from progressive court watchers, of the 25 to 4 decisions last term, um, eight of them had one conservative justice casting the deciding vote alongside the four uh, so-called liberals. Four of those eight involved Gorsuch, typically in criminal procedure cases, where uh, I, at least, most of my colleagues at Cato tend to agree with them. Uh, and only seven of those 20 had a conventional split of conservatives over liberals. Now, in a more typical term with more uh, controversial, high-profile cases that have ideological salience, uh, perhaps we'll see the conservative bloc flex its muscles. That could be this term. Stay tuned. Uh, but that wasn't uh, last year. Of course, the debate that we lived in the fall of 2018 wasn't really about Kavanaugh. While the people on Trump's uh, terrific list of fabulous judges were in, they're, they're, they're different in various ways. Uh, they were all in the originalist or textualist mainstream. They're not Trumpy judges, whatever that means. There's no Rudy Giuliani or Judge Judy on that list, right? The opposition to Kavanaugh was uh, partly a refusal to accept the 2016 election uh, and a frustration that uh, Donald Trump was getting to replace not just Scalia, but the swing vote on the court. I get that, but hey, as President Obama used to say, elections have consequences. And indeed, uh, what's ironic or interesting, amusing, however you want to put it, President Trump, who wouldn't have won had it not been for the Scalia vacancy, has now ensured that his legacy, at least in the domestic sphere, is in the judiciary. Having appointed a quarter of all circuit judges, a record 30 in his first two years, he's now up to 51 in three years, where Obama had 55 in both terms, he's also had back-to-back -back Supreme Court picks. And Justice Ginsburg turns 87 in two weeks. Justice Breyer is 81. Thomas 71 and maybe restless. They're not getting any younger. 
That's a big deal, because a president has few constitutional powers more important than picking judges. I'd, I'd wager that's the most important thing in the domestic sphere. Legislative victories can be short-lived. Regulations can be rescinded. Guidance documents aren't worth the paper they're written on. But those black-robed arbiters continue affecting our world decades after the president who appointed them has departed the White House. And all this goes as much or more for the lower courts, which after all decide 50 or 60,000 cases a year, whereas the Supreme Court is down to about 65 to 70. Nearly four years ago, April 2016, there was an important ruling on nonprofit donor disclosures, an issue I think near and dear to all of our hearts here, it was decided by a uh, federal district judge in California appointed by Lyndon Johnson. Now, when I give this talk to student groups, I mean, it might as well be Andrew Johnson, ancient history, right? And he's, he's still there. I think he recently took senior status, but he's, he's, still, he's still there. Uh, every four years, a president appoints about 20% of the judiciary. When President Obama took office, only one of the 13 circuits had majorities of Democratic appointees, the, the West Coast uh, Ninth Circuit. And that's for historical reasons. Presidents appoint judges to uh, all states, to all courts. But it just so happened that Jimmy Carter, who uh, didn't get a Supreme Court uh, vacancy to fill, got a consolation prize when Congress significantly expanded the judiciary and nearly doubled the Ninth Circuit. And those seats have basically stayed in the family. But anyway, one of the 13 had Democratic appointees, uh, majorities, when Obama took office. When he left, nine did. Those judicial slots were real wild cards. If a constitutional lawyer who'd been president of the Harvard Law Review deprioritized them, as Obama did his first few years before starting to catch up, then how much would a celebrity real estate developer care? Would he just see these as patronage posts for uh, casino lawyers? Would he just focus on trade and immigration and let the judiciary wither away? Well, to his credit, Trump has let uh, the White House Counsel's Office run the show. Occasionally, a senator will insist on a crony, but the ratio of solid movement nominees to establishmentarian hacks is really exceedingly high. Uh, and the result has been what I think uh, is Trump's biggest success, with judges of the same kind and caliber as that conservative constitutionalist Ted Cruz uh, would have picked, and probably better than Bush or Romney. There's little concern of anyone moving left or being a squish. The vetting instead focuses on the larger debate in conservative circles that's been pushed by libertarians for a long, long time, how to avoid the extreme judicial restraint that Roberts displayed in the Obamacare cases, where judges defer to the political branches rather than holding elected officials' feet to the constitutional fire. Um, so far, three circuits have been flipped. I mean, there's this, the four that had been Republican-appointed majorities got uh, younger uh, and more originalist, but the Third Circuit based in Philly, the Second Circuit based in New York, and the Eleventh Circuit based in Atlanta, of which Florida is a part, uh, have flipped, as they call it. But I think a far more significant shift has occurred on the Ninth Circuit, the largest 29 judgeships, and that's moved from 19D9R and one vacancy to 1613. Again, I use this as shorthand. It's no guarantee that, you know, uh, what this all means, but it's you know, as we try to generalize, uh, it, it, it does mean uh, something. Now, realizing the danger in all of this to a legal non-theory of social justice seeking, Democratic senators have used every parliamentary trick to slow this particular Trump train. They no longer have the biggest break, the filibuster, and so they force more cloture votes, that is, a vote to end a filibuster, or at least to move on to the final uh, vote. Uh, more cloture votes under this president than all previous presidencies combined. 
Uh, and until another rule changed, they demanded the, first 30, uh, the full 30 hours of debate time per nominee, even on judges who get uh, more than 90 votes, or some are confirmed unanimously. Judicial nominations are properly an election issue, uh, and I don't begrudge senators uh, voting against nominees who they think uh, would be bad, uh, subject to the voters' uh, 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 judgment uh, on that, if you will. But is there anything else that we can do to turn down the uh, political heat? I, I'll go into this in more detail in your questions if you have them, but uh, term limits are often uh, proposed. The biggest problem with that is that it would require a constitutional amendment. There are some academic theories that they wouldn't. I don't buy them. Uh, but moreover, it's kind of a cosmetic change, which would neither really change the, if you play it backwards 50 years, wouldn't have really changed the ideological balance of the court, nor would it necessarily make the court younger, because all of a sudden, with term limits, you would have people in their 60s being considered again. Then there's court packing or expanding the court. You know, in theory, if we were designing the Supreme Court from scratch, we might want to have more members so that you could have, you know, presumably there'd be fewer 10 to 9 decisions, say, than currently 5 to 4. Um, but we're not, uh, and the kind of transition issue is problematic. Even Bernie Sanders uh, has spoken of the danger of court packing because 50 years from now, every time the party switches, you add two more, you'll end up with 187 judges on the Supreme Court, and that's no good. And then there are radical possibilities, a, a college of justices, the, the lower court judges rotating through the Supreme Court with no permanent justices, or uh, get this, so five justices designated as Republican, five as Democrat, and five that are, have to be approved by the other 10. Now, how you depoliticize a court by actually explicitly tagging uh, 10 of the 15 with partisan labels, I, I'm not sure. But anyway, there are plenty of reforms uh, we can talk about. All of them boil down to rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And the Titanic is not the confirmation process. It's, uh, it's the ship of state. Uh, because the fundamental problem is not the process, but the product of what's going on at the Supreme Court and in the judiciary more broadly. The only way confirmations will be detoxified and the only way people will stop talking about Trump judges and Obama judges is for the Supreme Court to restore our constitutional order. Jurist, heal thyself. The reason we have these court battles is that the federal government makes too many decisions. There's no reason that uh, we need to have a one-size-fits-all healthcare system for the entire country, any more than that we need to have zoning laws be the same in every city. So let legislators, not regulators, make the hard calls about truly national issues like national defense and actually interstate actual commerce, uh, but let uh, states and localities make most decisions that affect our daily lives. Let Texas be Texas, and California be California, and Florida be Florida. That's the only way we'll diffuse tensions in Washington, whether in the halls of Congress or in the marble palace of the highest court in the land. Thank you. And I'm happy to answer or dodge any questions you might have. Talk a little bit more about where you're going with the amicus brief program. We file, last couple of years, I think we're plateaued. We really can't do more, um, about 75 to 80 a year. The breakdown of those is roughly 15 Supreme Court merits briefs, meaning cases that were granted that the court hears, 
roughly 35 cert stage, meaning at the stage where people petition the court to take cases. And a lot of organizations don't get involved in that level because you don't get as much publicity for these cert stage petitions. But look, the court uh, reverses or vacates 70% of the cases it takes. So just getting them to take a case is you're more than halfway home. And so the issues that we care about, we try to get involved, we try to push there. Uh, and then another 15, 20 uh, uh, circuit courts, the, the, the federal appellate courts, and then another five or so state supremes, uh, the occasional district court, however the math breaks down, roughly that ratio. Um, you know, an amicus brief program is different than an academic research agenda or a policy paper research agenda because uh, you don't just file amicus briefs whenever you feel passionately about an issue or think something's not been covered. The right case has to come along at the right level with the right uh, facts and, and all of that. Um, so it's not necessarily that we think, okay, you know, we need to start you know, filing more briefs on the tonnage clause that has not been examined recently. You, you look at what's coming up and what's, uh, what we think are good vehicles. And so a lot of people are filing cases, different kinds of challenges on the administrative state. So we're doing a lot of sifting. What is worth our time? Where can we uh, add value? Uh, and for that matter, of those 80 briefs or so that we file every year, we only do about 40% of them in-house. Uh, then we do another 30% joining other organizations and 30% uh, having uh, lawyers at big law firms doing them for us uh, pro bono. Uh, because we're a big enough name, we have established reputation, we don't need to just plant our own solo flag every time. Uh, if we find out and we try to do our due diligence that someone else is already uh, arguing the things that we would be, we'll just join them. Uh, so, you know, is, is there a direction uh, uh, to that? Um, you know, we keep our eye out. You know, we really, we, we look at what the composition of the court is. For a while, for several years there, maybe about five years ago, I think there was a year where we filed many fewer merits briefs, many more uh, cert stage. Or there was a, a few years where the court really wasn't granting much of anything. Uh, and then we did more circuit, uh, relatively more circuit uh, briefs than, uh, than, than cert stage. So there's more strategizing in terms of that sort of thing rather than issue areas. I mean, we always look at bread and butter things like First Amendment, Second Amendment, Fourth Amendment. You know, my colleague Clark Neely, who directs criminal justice handles, uh, uh, issues in, in that area. And, and as I said, the, the big growth area of late, because that's where the challenges are coming, seeing the winds at our backs with the, the composition of the justices and, and what their uh, past rulings have been, uh, that's really been the, uh, the notable increase. Predictions as to some of the big cases that are coming up, how they're going to fall out? Luckily, I don't get paid based on how successful I am with uh, predictions. I don't think anybody can make a, a living based on that. My, my friend and Cato adjunct scholar, uh, Josh Blackman, uh, runs a fantasy SCOTUS, where it sort of uses the wisdom of, it, it, it has the wisdom of crowds, you know, that aggregates people's uh, predictions, as well as a panel of 15 or 20 experts. And every year, they look at, you know, who does better, the crowd or the experts, individually or even as a group. And it's generally a wash. Um, uh, it depends what case you really, you know, you really care about. None of the big ones have been decided yet. Uh, I think we're in for a spate of five to four decisions, desp uh, despite uh, John Roberts' uh, desire to have the court speaking with more of one voice on on more uh, narrow issues. A lot of them are are kind of hard to predict. Um, um, I, what, what do you care most about when you ask that question? What what, what was in your mind? Uh, 
there's religious liberty, there's, um, I'm not sure what else is on there actually. Sure, uh, and there, there are two, I think the t two major religious liberty cases. One is about uh, the ministerial exception to employment discrimination rules that, you know, uh, a church or a synagogue or other, not, not just the house of worship, but religious organizations, do they have to abide by, you know, traditionally there, there's a carve out for them uh, in terms of the uh, employment discrimination laws, and does that continue to apply? I think that won't be a 5-4. I, j just like the last one, Hosanna Tabor, and the one before that, um, you know, that'll be 7-2, or if it's a narrower opinion, it might be unanimous with kind of separate concurrences and, and things like that. And the other one is a case in which we're filing next week, the latest iteration of the Little Sisters case, right? The, uh, the government keeps uh, uh, you know, regulating, uh, oppressing these, uh, these nuns. Um, and it involves, this, this actually deals with the administrative state. Do administrators have the power to craft accommodations? Even under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, um, you know, that seems like the government can exempt uh, organizations or has to, to do that, but can they craft accommodations basically rewriting the statute? It's a very interesting uh, issue, which I mentioned Josh Black when he's handling that brief for us. I just saw the latest uh, uh, draft, but it's not so much that the Trump administration keeps wanting to, you know, put the nose to the grindstone against the nuns, but they're, they're looking at uh, the power of the administrative state more broadly. And to give you some inside baseball, they've now delayed several times filing their brief. I think there's a lot of kind of contention between the different agencies about what position they're going to take on that. But I think that will be a win for the nuns and, uh, you know, a loss for the administrative state with, with that religious liberty overlay. Uh, uh, I'll restate the, the, the Trump tax cases. Uh, it, these are subpoenas, right? So there's uh, subpoenas for Trump's tax records uh, pursuant to the District Attorney of New York, uh, Vance, and then uh, by, the, by the House, by the House committee uh, that wants to get at them. There's slightly different issues. The power of the House to issue subpoenas to compel the executive to release documents under its investigative oversight authority. Um, and then the, during a kind of a criminal investigation and whether it's a fishing expedition, whether it's uh, overly broad, in theory that Trump is uh, avoiding uh, New York State's campaign finance laws. Um, I don't know. These are really issues of first impression. Uh, you know, the, the, the big uh, precedents are United States versus Nixon, unanimous ruling forcing President Nixon to uh, give up his uh, his uh, tape recordings in the, in the Oval Office and uh, Clinton versus Jones, that a president uh, is not immune for, from civil process during the pendency of his presidency. So, but that kind of begs the question of whether Congress is acting within its authority, or the House is, in the first place, and whether uh, the DA is you know, pursuing a lawful investigation or is just you know, randomly wants to target someone and, and see what's, what's there to prosecute in their tax returns. Uh, I think it's going to be a close one. I think that one might be very narrow, however it's decided. Roberts is going to try to work hard not to make that a five to four. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ilya. Um, the job of a think tank CEO is vision and leadership and uh, settling all the uh, managerial problems and a lot of fundraising. So as Peter mentioned, he's headed to the airport to go uh, uh, meet with a donor in Montana. Denver is just the halfway point. Um, 
So it falls to me to thank you all for being here and to close things here. Let me just reiterate Peter's thanks to those of you who are Cato sponsors. We appreciate your support. Those of you who are not yet Cato sponsors, um, I hope you have found somewhere over here uh, a, a uh, item that has information on how to become a Cato donor. If you like the work we're doing, I hope you will uh, join, support what we're doing. And we have a busy year ahead with our summer programs for teachers, with our publications, our amicus briefs, our uh, monetary center. We have a conference coming up defending the free market against these new attacks on the free market with some very impressive speakers. I think that's at the end of April. And for those of you who occasionally like to get dressed up and go to New York, we have our Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty Gala Dinner in New York on May 20th, and everybody's invited to that. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for your support. <laughs>